I'm Marcus Smith, and you're listening to Constant Wonder. You know, in spite of our show's name, there is a certain intermittent wonder that comes around just once a year, and because of this annual event, right now I probably should be humming or whistling a Christmas tune for you, the most wonderful time of the year, you know, Andy Williams. He sang it in a way that made us all believe it really was the most wonderful time of the year, and those who observe Christmas rarely refute this. Now, in this whole business of Christmas bringing a sense of wonder and charm and magic, there's often a little bit of a snag, something to quibble over here, and it has to do with a premise of deception that underscores a very important aspect of the whole thing. I'm not trying to offend anybody or rock a child's world. I'm just alluding here to truth claims, veracity claims about elves and flying reindeer and, of course, Santa Claus. Is there some way to marry the fun and the games of Christmas, the smoke and the mirrors part, to marry that with what is moral and honest and upright, that aim of celebrating all that's good and holy and genuinely inspiring? Well, this is a more profound question, I think, than just uh, talking about the tooth fairy. On Constant Wonder right now, we have for you an account of one man's personal vision of what Christmas should be and how he sprang into action to make Christmas the most wonderful time of the year. Now, it's a remarkably ironic story of goodness because it does fold in a bit of an ethical tangle about the end justifying the means. So I want you to get ready to learn about the Santa Claus man. And we're going to do this with the help of an author who can take us back in time little more than a century ago to meet a Christmas version, I would say, a Christmas version of P.T. Barnum, a fellow possessed of considerable showmanship who operated what was for many years a going concern in New York City. Christmas was at the heart of it all, and he was doing his tinseled best to support all those children who write letters to Santa, hoping for something special in full faith that Santa's going to come through for them. Well, let me introduce you now to Alex Palmer. He's not the Santa Claus man, but he has written about the Santa Claus man. Palmer uh, has a paperback edition of his book, The Santa Claus Man, and it's subtitled The Rise and Fall of a Jazz Age Con Man and the Invention of Christmas in New York. Alex Palmer, by the way, also author of The Atlas of Christmas, the merriest, tastiest, quirkiest holiday traditions from around the world. He's joining with us now by Skype. Alex, welcome to our show. Hi, Marcus. Thanks so much. So how many years have you known about the Santa Claus man? I believe it was 2010. It was, Chris, it was Christmas Eve as it, as it happened, 2010, when I first <laughs> talked with my because uh, I, I he's it turns out you know he uh, the the this john gluck the santa claus man is actually a distant relative of mine and that's how i kind of came upon the story so it was it was christmas 2010 when my uncle mentioned this uh person in our family at, at that time he thought it was a great grandfather who had answered letters that kids wrote to santa and was based in new york and started this organization um i thought that sounded like a really you know fun story and, and we kind of I'd heard mention of that story before, but hadn't really thought of pursuing it. And then it was once once my uncle reminded me of that, I, I had to start digging into this piece of our family's past and realized there was so much more to the story. It, there was indeed a relative of ours. Turned out he was actually a great grand uncle, not uh, a uh, great grandfather, but who lived in New York and started this group that answered letters that children sent to Santa and really had, had become quite famous during, it's about a hundred years ago, uh, sort of this celebrated figure in New York City and was well known to celebrities and uh, you know politicians and, and kind of the toast. But then as I dug deeper, I found there was sort of a, a dark uh, trajectory of the story and, and realized there was just so much more there. So it took a couple of years to research and then uh, you know the original book came out and 2015, and and now we just have the paper back out. Well, do you suppose that the family kind of quit talking about him because of the dark underbelly here going on? I mean, it's like something to be ashamed of. You know, it, it, they actually were not even aware of it. That was what was funny, and and all that we really had because we only knew, uh, you know, in the sort of the family history. At least, you know, my my part of that part of my family only knew the the very barest outlines of the story and. 
just weren't even aware of the negative side. So if they were, there might've been, you know, other family members that just hadn't really, you know, just didn't really talk about it. But in our family, it was just, it, it had sort of the sort of the game of telephone that passes, you know, from, from one generation to the next. Right. And I think just the details, the, the negative side kind of got washed, washed away as the story kind of was passed down. So this man, John Duval Gluck, I think is, his, is that how you say his name? That's right. He lived in New York City, and at some point he decided that Christmas was going to be his thing. Where, where does it all start? Yeah, so he was always, I mean, it started with his, uh, the day he was born in some ways, he, he would say he was actually born on Christmas Day, and that was something he uh, would, would always <laughs> mention to publicists. Uh, but he always had had this 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 sort of panache and, and great way of telling stories and just being a really really engaging fun person but he was working as a customs broker was kind of his his business when he, he started in you know uh, out in the professional world his father owned it so he sort of followed in his footsteps and but always had this sort of interest in something more exciting so he started dipping his toe into helping uh run publicity for for friends of his and, and business partners that he worked with and kind of get telling these really you know wild stories to the press to to kind of gin up interest in things like there was a, a bullfight that he uh, promoted to like just restaurants that he would kind of sell. Uh, he, he, he was sort of this, this uh, you know, salesman, uh, you know, just like to sort of, you know, good, just sort of this early publicity man in, in a lot of ways. Okay, um, I'm going to stop and, you just for a moment because you said bullfight yeah. and bull, I don't think of bullfights <laughs> being anywhere near Manhattan. There actually was. That's this is something that one of his first uh, times of, of trying publicity was in Coney Island on Mardi Gras. They they promoted it a, as a bloodless bullfight. It was this big festival they had at that time. It was nineteen fourteen, I believe. Uh, they brought a bull and had a professional from from Spain who came, and there was uh, it, you know it, it was they the, Gluck was sort of leading the publicity of it and pr made all these promises that there was no no bull was going to get hurt. This was purely for demonstration. Attracted this huge crowd to Coney Island. Uh, it turned out the the bull uh, did ended up charging the uh, the matador and ended up hurting itself on the fence. Uh, the ASPCA who was there, you know, jumped immediately into action. Uh, they had brought some police with them. Gluck ended up being arrested as a result of this bullfight. So, and as well as a few of the other people involved, because it turned out the the animals were injured despite the uh, promotion of it as a as a you know non uh, as as a safe uh, event. So it 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 sort of was a you know, kind of a, a meltdown that, that happened when he tried this first uh, foray into publicity. But despite that, the negative reaction that it got, it did get a lot of press. So that kind of fueled his his love of just seeing his name in the newspaper and subsequently led to the Santa Claus Association. So my P.T. Barnum comparison is kind of okay, isn't it? It is, and it's fascinating to watch to, to as I researched Gluck to see him become this figure, it, he sort of started as just kind of a businessman, and you can really see him grow as as the mass media. This was during kind of the the nineteen. 10s to the 1920s and mass media just grew and grew this is you know as film was was taking off and gluck himself kind of grew as a as a figure uh into this and and started as just sort of you know being this publicity man and then really started to fancy himself as as this sort of you know larger than life figure and presented himself as as this you know expert who had reinvented charity and and really in some ways uh like to sort of fancy uh, fashion himself as a you know sort of santa claus himself in in, in the flesh so let's kind of uh, look away from John Gluck for just a moment and talk about this whole practice of writing letters to Santa. Do you know where that began, when it began, who was doing it? And then we're going to fold him in because he gets very involved there. Yeah. Um, and that's what's it's there's no real clear, you know, f when Santa letters first were written. It was sort of the practice began in the early 1800s is, is about the, the earliest we see letters. And they generally originally came from parents written to children or from Santa written to children. It sort of has the this sort of wise counsel of here's what you should uh, do this year and kind of, you know, sort of giving them advice and 
uh, this, talking about their, you know, their behavior from the previous year. And over time, that shift to children would then write letters back to Santa or then eventually start requesting gifts and things like that. Generally, at first, they were just letters they would leave on the hearth or, uh, you know, near the, the where, where Santa was supposed to be, you know, near the chimney where he was supposed to be coming down. Uh, and then as the post office grew and door-to-door -door delivery spread throughout the country, then you had them dropping the letters to Santa in the mail. And that grew. Eventually, newspapers caught on to this fact that children were dropping these letters in the mail uh, and would start publishing them. Unfortunately, these letters being addressed to somebody who, you know, spoiler, doesn't actually exist, uh, or at least, in, you know, in, in, in a, uh, a literal sense, uh, the, the, the post office was sort of had no choice but to send these letters to the dead letter office. They, they couldn't really be answered. There was no one to, to take them. So that led to uh, a kind of a call from the public as well as the newspapers, the media started urging that something that these letters, that these innocent childhood wishes that were sent uh, be answered in some way, that they not just be sent to the dead letter office and destroyed. Uh, so that led to some back and forth with the, the post office. They, they changed their policy for one year. They, they actually did allow the public to receive the letters if they requested them. But then because that caused all kinds of confusion and inconsistency from one from one state to the next, one city to the next, they retracted that. But then come 1911, they ended up reverse, reversing it again, and, and they did opt to allow for the release of Santa letters as long as it went to organizations that were approved by the local postmaster. So that was kind of the, uh, the caveat. And this is where Gluck comes back in. So you had the Santa letters that were pouring into the post office into New York City in particular had plenty, tens of thousands they would get. And they, yet once the post office changed its policy and said that anyone can actually answer these letters as long as they get the approval of the local postmaster, they started. you started seeing groups popping up throughout the country that would take this on. But in New York, it, nobody really stepped up. For two years, they had this policy. They they had the letters coming in. And if anybody had wanted to step up, they could and take the letters. And nobody did. So finally, uh, Gluck spotting this opportunity that the, the papers were covering the fact that, you know, nobody was answering these letters that children were sending and that it's a shame that, you know, in, in the, the, the biggest city in the country that the letters, childhood wishes were being ignored and destroyed. Uh, so Gluck coming off of his embarrassment at this uh, bullfight that had gone sideways, uh, saw this as an opportunity and uh, founded, uh, you know, sort of raised his hand and said, you know what, I, I think I have a plan to answer these children's letters. And uh, that was when he founded the Santa Claus Association. And this plan at this point, from what I understand, was really totally above board. He wanted to help kids, it seems. Yeah. And what his sort of the, the, the genius of his plan was that it wouldn't actually be this sort of top-down charity. There's a, there was a lot of charities at the time that were really working to, uh, you know, verify everything, and they would get, they, they would, you know, raise the funds, distribute the funds to children or to, you know, those in need. It was very centrally organized. Gluck's idea was, I'm going to start this group that will take the letters, but then we just send the letters out to any volunteers who want to answer them. And then they take it upon themselves to reply, to then bring the gifts that the children have asked of from Santa, because you get some really heartbreaking letters where it would be a child would write that, you know, maybe they lost their father and their, their mother is sick and they can't really get Christmas gifts this year, or that, uh, you know, they've got this mother pleading with Santa that she has six children and can't afford to get them gifts. So you get these heartbreaking breaking letters uh, that then those in New Yorkers who wanted to reply to them or maybe, you know, could choose the letters that they found particularly emotionally stirring could then personally respond to them. They would actually get the gifts and even go to that person's house. At the time, they were releasing the home addresses of these letter writers. So it created, not only did this help the donor, the volunteer who's saying, you know, I can see not only it's not just cutting a check to a worthy charity, I'm actually personally bringing this gift and playing Santa Claus to this 
needy child and they could actually go to the house and deliver the gift and see the smile on the face of those in need. Uh, but not only was there that emotional benefit for the volunteer, uh, but also from an organizational standpoint, it took a lot of the pressure off of Gluck. They really weren't handling any funds. They weren't requesting money. It was all just volunteer-based. They got the letters, they distributed them to those who wanted to play Santa, and then they, they uh, you know, their job was done. So he would call it sort of a clearinghouse of Santa letters. It wasn't meant to be this sort of traditional charity. Uh, so the sort of third benefit of that approach was that it got a ton of publicity. People loved that idea. And they loved the idea that Santa letters were going to be answered and that they could answer them and play Santa or, uh, you know, claim to be one of his elves and, and just assisting. Uh, so it really caught the public imagination and got a ton of coverage when it was launched uh, in, in 1914. And, uh, you know, Gluck was uh, certainly eager to, uh, to and, and knew how to play uh, those uh, the, the sort of the media to his advantage. And his whole outfit, this is the thing that he called uh, some association, the, the, the Santa Claus, the Christmas association. What was it called? That's right. It was the Santa Claus Association. And and these Which, it's a very yeah. great the way you described it, it has a very grassrootsy kind of feel to it with with mm -hmm. it's it's more like a collective of people and he's the clearinghouse he's just facilitating it but at some point it sounds like he wants to have tighter reins on it himself for his own benefit yes and that's where it was fascinating to research this story because it first and you know for years this group uh, you just got some great coverage and and focused on the fact that they don't accept money and, and things like that. But then as you really kind of read between the lines of what Gluck says from one year to the next and the sort of things that the organization is requesting, at first they are entirely volunteer run, as, as I was saying, you know, no funds uh, necessary. It was all just based on the generosity of, of New Yorkers. Uh, but then he'll then, you know, in the first year, kind of later in as it gets a ton of attention for, for this, this group is such a, you know, great idea. A lot of, you know, the, the requests start pouring in from volunteers. It's, you know, thousands and thousands of New Yorkers step up to help out, you know, because it's not really a large financial commitment and it does have that real emotional appeal. But then he says, well, actually uh, there's, there's a request sort of late in that season. We actually have gotten quite a few more requests, a lot more letters coming in from the children than we expected. And we, we sent that one of the things the group did was no matter what, if a kid sent a letter, he would get a response back. He or she would get a response back from Santa. So they would send these little letters. So even if for some reason their letter wasn't able to be personally answered with gifts from, from a New Yorker, they would at least get a letter response back from Santa Claus himself with this great little uh, letterhead. But that cost you know a couple cents each for the postage. So the Santa Claus Association, Gluck said, you know, if we could get some money for postage, that would help a lot. Uh, the the I believe he requested it was like three thousand dollars was what they said that that first year that they would need, uh, and that money came pouring in. People uh, were happy to pay for that. Then there were other. Uh, requests for things like office supplies and then uh soon there were there were other uh there was you know for he, he started mentioning that they would start a gift buying committee as part of the group and that uh you know for for that they might need additional funds he started uh not only what was he publicizing the group itself but then using a lot of these fundraising events would serve as additional publicity opportunities. So as he was attracting a lot of attention with this worthy cause, uh, he also caught the attention of, of folks like, uh, you know, like Broadway, uh, Broadway manager who offered up uh, his theater for one night to do a charity evening where all proceeds from the ticket sales went to the Santa Claus Association. So that's a few thousand more dollars. They started this Santa Claus annual that featured, you know, fun Santa stories and the photos of of members of the association and, and all these and would sell it for for 25 cents. And they started a Christmas seal program similar to that uh, you see I believe the, the Red Cross does where you get these little Christmas seals you can pay a certain amount of money and then uh, you get these really beautiful sort of stamps you can put on your Christmas packages and things like that and that too they charged I believe 50 cents for for a, a set of six so all these fundraising schemes for not for, for an organization that's not really supposed to be handling any money 
Uh, so it, it, it did get curious. And then, uh, you know, these more and more of these start adding up until 1916, kind of he made his sort of biggest play by announcing that they were going to construct an entire headquarters for the group, which he dubbed the Santa Claus building. And it was this was not just going to be a little office space for the Santa Claus Association. He really envisioned it as this grand cathedral for this, you know, mythical character. It was going to have a giant stained glass window with Santa in it, a huge Christmas tree right at the front. And not only was the association going to be housed there, but there would be a number of other worthy charities for children and there would be uh you know uh, a giant you know restaurant up top and uh trade shows for of, of toys and sort of a giant toy store uh so it was it was really this ambitious vision and they just needed according to gluck three hundred thousand dollars uh to complete it which was you know millions in in today's uh money so that was kind of the most ambitious of his fundraising schemes and the press ate it up they covered it as this great idea, how fun is this going to be? You know, not even questioning where, what exactly the, the value of something like this would be or checking if the checks that people were cutting to the organization were actually going to it. Uh, so it, it, it uh, the, the fundraising schemes just got ever more elaborate with him and the actual way that the money was being applied got more obfuscated as uh, as each season went on. So I'm guessing if he has traction with the public, with great publicity and the media is on to this and they're all uh, gangbusters about it, at this point, this is more than uh, just sort of a, something, uh, a little job on the side. This is his day job at this point, I'm guessing, by 1916. He's full-time Mr. The, the Santa Claus man. Yeah, it pretty much is. He also has a number of other schemes that uh, kind of follow the pattern, the success he has with the Santa Claus Association. He ends up kind of mimicking that in a number of other organizations, things like Boy Scouts or, or the military, and kind of creating these causes for very emotional, uh, uplifting sort of ideas that then he fundraises off of. At the time, fundraising laws and rules about nonprofits were were pretty uh, fungible or pretty pretty uh, flexible. There wasn't a lot of enforcement, and it was pretty hard to actually call someone out for you know abusing uh, a charity and and using that kind of soliciting uh, with the money. Maybe you know only a fraction of it actually going to the good cause. So while the Santa Claus Association was basically his full-time job, there was a number of other schemes that he started uh, trying and that kind of got found out a lot faster than the Santa Claus Association. And, and sort of the revelation of those, it was surprising how quickly those were sort of found out while the work of the Santa Claus Association, he, he kind of continued to do that for 15 years before people really caught wind of the, his sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of questionable uh uh, you know, work that was actually being done with this group. The funny thing was throughout all this, you mentioned deception at the beginning of, of this segment. And the only questions that were really raised about the ethics of this organization, it wasn't about where does this money go? Who are these people in charge? Are they, you know, benefiting from this? The question was, are the kids actually uh, being honest in their letters. They, they weren't questioning Gluck's motive. They were questioning <laughs> letter writers. There was, there was this big concern in the, the, the New York Times and with, with organizations like the Charity uh, Organization Society that would actually say, you know, a lot of these kids write these letters. They don't even believe in Santa Claus. They're, they're, they don't actually, they don't need these gifts. They're just writing these letters because they want free stuff. And so that was where the concern tended to be focused. Nobody was actually looking at the person running the organization. They tended to look at the kids writing the letters and, and worrying that those were, uh, you know, the children were being taught sort of to to beg and to uh, to lie, perhaps uh, to to sort of play up their misfortune in order to get better gifts from from the public. Well, all of this that we've been talking about so far is before World War. Uh before the conclusion of World War One, and uh, we're going to have to talk about how he gets involved kind of almost on the international scene, trying to get get uh, his his cause out there to 
to bring peace to all nations or something like that. We're going to talk about that. (laughs) Just we're going to take a short break here on our show and come right back and visit some more with Alex Palmer. Palmer is author of The Santa Claus Man, The Rise and Fall of a Jazz Age Con Man and the Invention of Christmas in New York. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. Alex Palmer is with us. He's an author and a journalist, author of The Santa Claus Man, The Rise and Fall of a Jazz Age Con Man, and The Invention of Christmas in New York. Alex, this distant relative of yours, some great-great-great-uncle or something, John Duval Gluck, at this point in our story, he is a force to be reckoned with. The people, the public in New York, they know who he is and I guess they're they're behind him, and then the war is going to happen, and somehow it seems like he wants to spring out onto the international stage. That's right, and and partly the, this was you know the the this sort of arrival of the Santa Claus Association in 1914 was met with tons of attention and and uh, adulation from the public, but by a year later. The story was was he he Gluck seemed to sense that there needed to be something a little more exciting with the story, and at that time, all that anybody was talking about was was this great war that was that was brewing and, and unfolding in Europe, and you know whether the U.S. would be involved, those kind of questions. Um, that was obviously dominating things when come Christmas uh, in that in that time, um, <clears throat> and so Gluck started. Gluck sort of perhaps re, re, seeing some. Uh, that that where this was all all the public attention was on the war, he wanted to find a way to connect what the Santa Claus Association was doing with this war effort. So he he actually uh, started to uh, said said that he was going to have the children uh, write uh, that there'd be uh, you know thousands of letters that children were going to be writing asking for. Uh, peace on Christmas Day, and then it became a million letters that children were gonna gonna write, and then that sort of transitioned into saying that the Santa Claus Association was going to, uh, you know, coordinate the prayers of of one million children who would pray for peace and and uh, you know truce on on Christmas Day at least uh, as sort of a sign of kind of an appreciation of Christmas and the you know sort of bond of of, of the fellow man kind of uh, positive Christmas ideas sort of uh, uh, supporting the Christmas spirit. And uh, he came out with that idea, and, and it, it got not uh, – uh, it, it didn't catch on with the, uh, you know, uh, with the, the federal officials or, or those uh, military uh, officials. Um, but that call ended up being uh, – he was one of the first to kind of come out with that. There were others, uh, p- politicians and even the pope, uh, that came out also calling for – uh, the Christmas truce on on Christmas Day and and the ceasing of of the war efforts at that time, but uh, Gluck was actually one of the first to do it. He kind of got ahead of the Pope even, and uh, he would sometimes claim that uh, you know he was the one that kind of came up with the idea. And though it never officially was embraced by any of the 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 you know the the the, the powers, uh, it did uh, kind of famously there was a. Uh, the, the the Christmas the famous Christmas truce of that year, where uh, both sides did in fact put down their arms, not uh, due to anything Gluck uh, said, but perhaps those those uh, prayers that he claimed the Santa Claus Association helped to uh, generate. May, maybe that did have something to do with it. Gluck certainly uh, presented it as if he had kind of helped bring about this uh, at least one day of peace on the front lines. You know, uh, I, I I wonder how close we're getting to the part of the story where he really is compromising uh, ethics. Because at, at this point, there's all sorts of people who want to dovetail into public sentiment about how innocent children are. And of course, we all want peace in the world. And to, to be uh, applauding those efforts and contributing to those efforts, that's not necessarily cynical PR yet. It's not just that he's turning a fast buck. But the, the word con man's in your title. So I'm wondering, mm-hmm. from, from your standpoint, at what point do you think that he's actually kind of moving over to the dark side it's very hard to pinpoint and what the, the the best clues are in these other organizations he starts creating that kind of imitate the santa claus association but are much more clearly just about grabbing a, a, a quick buck and have even less legitimacy as far as their actual mission and what they're actually doing things like uh this this uh 
organization he, he founded that was the Citizen Secret Service that supposedly was, you know, also sort of capitalizing on the concerns about the war, where it was asking people to, to you know, cut a check and then they would get this. They, they, they sort of are helping their country. They're going to get it. He sends them an official membership card uh, and then uh, the, but th that's about it. There's no other purpose to it. He starts, uh, he kind of becomes the, the head of, of fundraising for this organization called the U.S. Boy Scout, which uh, was a, a sort of originally started as a competitor to the Boy Scouts of America, which is the organization still going today that's certainly more familiar, but ended up quickly as, as the Boy Scouts of America kind of became more um, you know, more formalized and, and uh, kind of expanded its reach and, and influence, uh, the U.S. Boy Scouts dwindled and essentially just became this fundraising organization that was used by the solicitors that worked for it to kind of make money for themselves. And they would, they still had boys that were involved with it and, and kind of helped with certain projects that it would do. But as each year went on, Gluck became more involved in the fundraising and it became more just about fundraising where they wouldn't actually be doing any activities or, uh, you know, troop gatherings. It was mostly just there to help bring in money from people who were often just confusing it with the Boy Scouts of America, wanting to donate to that organization. And, uh, you know, the money would get grabbed up by Gluck and, and his, uh, his, his, uh, you know, group there. Um, and there was a number of other organizations like this that start popping up and that get found out and uh, shut down pretty quickly, usually by other organizations that, like in the, the case of the Boy Scouts, it was, uh, you know, the BSA actually stepped in and, and finally, uh, it took them a while, but they finally put a stop to the U.S. Boy Scout. And they sort of exposed the the corruption of, of Gluck's practices that he continued to do with the, the Santa Claus Association, but no, most of the public turned a blind eye to that. It was not something that people were looking too closely at compared to his other organizations, and maybe just because of how powerful the, uh, the, the, the narrative was of these Santa letters being answered. And, you know, it would the alternative be just to send those children's wishes back to the dead letter office. It just seemed kind of callous to think that. So people tended not to ask too many questions of this particular organization. And, you know, the M.O. of a grifter often entails uh, just tapping into the emotions, the sentiments of a public and, and, and playing off of those. Did he ever get around to the business of wrapping himself in the American flag? Did he, did he use patriotism as a, oh, one of his calling cards? Absolutely. Yeah. And that really ties into his efforts with the, you know, connecting it to the war. He actually even called it War Santa Claus was, was for a brief period. He, he could have a, a sort of sister organization that would raise money for uh, the war effort uh, in the name of Santa. He he even had a, a, a branch that was dedicated to German families with the, the idea that, you know, to help encourage uh, supporting them, uh, you know, in, in adopting, you know, a more American uh, way to kind of like keep them uh, outside of, of poverty. And, and, you know, by, by doing that, it would have sort of these more valuable patriotic uh, ends that it would that it would bring about, um, but he also even uh, kind of on the sly wrote to the U.S. government offering to use that those efforts the the fact that uh, the Santa Claus Association is in in communication with a lot of these families and and in this case explicitly reaching out to German families and he offered up his services to the U.S. government saying yeah I can sort of help to sniff out. Uh, potential spies that are that are German spies that are in the U.S. and sort of offering his services there, which was sort of dismissed by the uh, when when the, uh, the the it was received by the, the the U.S. government, they didn't take it very seriously. But it was uh, showed sort of Gluck's willingness to kind of play both sides, sort of playing up the sort of noble efforts to help these German families while also trying to get support from the U.S. government to investigate these same people. And it's hard to tell where his true motivations lie, but the sense is sort of, he kind of was trying all these things and just throwing everything against the wall to see what he could get away with. And generally just to the ends of uh, enriching himself in some way. So John Duvall Gluck, does there come a point in his story when there's some, when, you know, when he's completely exposed, where the, the, the public is on to him and uh, his his heyday comes to a, a, an, an abrupt end, or does he just kind of fade away? How does how does this all end? It does come to an abrupt end, and there there was a number, but it it 
it goes in stages. He sort of is, it, what's fascinating about him is he, as, as many times as he can be exposed, he sort of keeps coming back and, and keeps, you know, in the Santa Claus Association in particular, keeps surviving. So it, it kind of, a number of different strikes against him where not only these these organizations that I mentioned, these sort of other fake sort of following a similar uh you know, organizational structures, the Santa Claus Association get get found out, exposed. Um, he couldn't really be prosecuted because it was more uh, it, just legally, it wasn't the sort of thing that you'd like go to jail for at that time. The laws weren't that strict. Uh, but he, the Santa Claus Association was then investigated by the uh, the New York District Attorney looked into it, but they couldn't find enough because the laws weren't strong enough. They couldn't do much to 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 take it down. The Charity Organization Society, which I mentioned earlier, it was an organization that really uh, was all about uh, investigating charity claims and and making sure to avoid the kind of uh, you know emotionally based donations that Gluck was was championing. Uh, they they looked into the organization and uh, into Santa letters in general and. and found that you know most of these letters were were not uh, needy kids that were writing it and uh, so they investigated there was the the bureau of investigation sort of a precursor to the fbi looked into gluck and found uh that the the investigator found that his dealings were shady uh in almost you know every area of his life but they didn't have enough of a case to to build against him at that time and finally the the real showdown came between the new york city's uh, public welfare commissioner who kind of stepped into this job at a time when charity in the city was running wild. It was sort of the wild west and his role was to kind of corral it in some way. Uh, so he really cracked down on a lot of street solicitors and those that were just asking for money that didn't go to very clear causes. And he got Gluck in his sights and really went after him and demanded an audit of his paperwork, of, of the accounts. And um, Gluck caused it became this you know big uh controversy in the press with you know pitting one side against the other and saying you know this guy's trying to take down santa claus and then gluck being sort of uh, uh you know bloviating about how this is against the christmas spirit it really became sort of a public circus uh, as they went after him and he couldn't still couldn't quite uh take him down uh, the the public welfare commissioner couldn't quite take down the santa claus association what ended up um finally doing it, finally putting the, the nail in, in the coffin of the organization was getting the post office involved. And the whole reason the Santa Claus Association existed and that Gluck was the sole person with permission to answer children's letters to Santa was based on the permission of the New York postmaster. So uh, the public welfare commissioner had the, after trying a number of different tactics, realized this was sort of where he could, uh, you know, this this was the, the 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 place that could make the difference. He got the postmaster uh, involved and was able to sort of revoke the permission uh, for answering Santa letters that the Santa Claus Association had. So once that was revoked, no more letters went to the organization. Gluck no longer was the person officially sanctioned to answer Santa's mail, and that pretty much unwound the organization. And that was the end of, of Gluck as uh, the Santa Claus man. And this was so long before Dr. Seuss that we didn't have the metaphor of the Grinch to p point at the inspector and say, <laughs> right. how dare you, how dare you. Uh, were you ever able to turn up anything about his, his the closing of his life, his final days? Did he, I mean, people like this don't generally just say, okay, I quit and I'll be, I'll be good. And I'll go away. They generally, no. uh, their mo is pretty ingrained. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if, to his dying day, if he didn't try to turn a fast buck by being sly. Yeah, as 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 much as I could gather on him, he did. He actually kept in pretty uh, regular contact with my own grandmother. Unfortunately, she had passed by the time that I started digging into this story. So I did have some letters he had sent and some cards, and he sort of made his. And I also was able to to talk with. Uh, relatives like uh, who had knew, knew him as a child and grew up hearing his stories and and just sort of finding him a delight and, uh, and entertaining, but also uh, also you felt like you couldn't trust him was kind of the the the, the assessment of of this guy. He was the sort of the fun uncle, but also the one that you're like not really, uh, really trusting. But yeah, after the the collapse of the Santa Claus Association, he made his way down to Florida and, and got into real estate down there. Uh, and there were never, there were a couple bubblings after he, he tried to, to launch a, 
uh, like a national smile day during the, the depression. He was trying to get sort of following the, the, the same strategy as the war uh, truce, where it was asking everyone to, you know, be, be more joyful on a particular day and uh, thought that that might help turn around the depression. Uh, so there were a couple of these that kind of popped up. And um, but but generally his schemes seem to uh, kind of shrink or at least he kept them a little quieter after the collapse of the Santa Claus Association. And he, he retired to, to Florida eventually. And by all uh, accounts, from what I can see, he seemed to, to sort of in, have a pretty happy life with his, his third wife down there, who uh, uh, it seemed like they, they were uh, sort of enjoyed themselves uh, in his, his sort of final years. Well, two final things. One is an invitation to play uh, armchair psychotherapist a bit, and the other is to kind of <laughs> situate him in, in American culture, because he's a cultural phenomenon in a way that's not unknown to the American story. Uh, do you think he really believed in his own schemes as, as being based on pure motives? I'm, I'm wondering if people like this are really sly, really clever, or if they, they just don't understand the rules, but they think they're doing good. I think it's more the latter. I, I, if he was somebody who just wanted to make a lot of money, this was kind of an elaborate way to go about it. There was definitely some benefits and some some kind of uh, positive, joyful outcomes that came with the group. You, you can't deny that that it brought joy to a lot of people, and whether the people that were giving the gifts or receiving them, and sure, it wasn't. Uh, Maybe, you know, maybe there was a more efficient way to do it, but there clearly were benefits there. And even in the organization's sort of final years where he was clearly embezzling a lot of the funds that were coming in, uh, there was still these sort of positive benefits that it was bringing. So he, and I, I do get the impression that he at least saw, I think he did see see it maybe as a ends justifying the means or or that, sure, I'm taking some of this money, but look at all the, the good it's still generating. So I think he he did, I don't think he saw himself as a villain. I think he saw himself as doing good and maybe, you know, also wanting to be compensated for doing all these good things. So he, for somebody that was just out to make money, there would have been easier ways for him to do it than such an elaborate scheme. I think he really did see some, uh, some, some, you know, higher purpose to what he was doing and really did think of himself in, uh, you know, as doing something good. I think he, I, I don't think he had a problem looking at himself in the mirror, you know, each day. And maybe you kind of want to like him yourself. You want to, you want to you wanna like him. Yeah. I feel like there is something sort of at least fun. He's maybe not somebody I would, uh, you know, trust with, with, with much of, you know, with, with my own money or anything, but I do think he is somebody that you'd want to sit next to at dinner and to, uh, you know, maybe to, 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 to sort of catch up with. He's somebody that clearly <laughs> was a character. He was a lot of fun and, and knew how to tell a story. Well, Alex Palmer, thanks to you for introducing us to the Santa Claus man and his tale. It's great to visit with you. Thanks so much, Marcus. Author and journalist Alex Palmer is author of The Santa Claus Man, The Rise and Fall of a Jazz Age Con Man, and The Invention of Christmas in New York. By the way, he's also author of a new book, The Atlas of Christmas, The Merriest, Tastiest, Quirkiest Holiday Traditions from Around the World. Time for a short break, and when Constant Wonder returns, we're going to look at the truth behind another mythic figure whose real life wasn't quite what the storybooks say it was. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Constant Wonder. Finishing out the hour now, we're going to take a look at another legendary figure, Johnny Appleseed by name, a pioneer of the American frontier, a fairly eccentric fellow, larger than life, and a bit more complicated than the Disneyfied version lets on. He never grew apples per se. That's one of the funny things about the Disney, the, the Disney film. They have him, as the settlers are going west, you remember... He's shaking the tree, and apples are falling into their beautiful, plump apples are falling into their baskets. The apples he grew, and I think you said you were an orchard man, the apples he grew were grown from seed, not by grafting. So I have so to they, ask you here, if yeah. he was growing little, small trees, uh, the, the story we get is that he stuck them in the ground and moved on, and other people came, and wherever the trees were planted, there they stayed. Was he actually the nurseryman who then would sell the small trees, and the other people would take them off and plant them? 
that was the idea. Mm-hmm. And we have we have there, he left very few things behind, uh, very few uh, pieces of you know of physical evidence of his passage through life. But there's one that was a uh, it was a sales receipt uh, made out to a guy named John Oliver, and uh, and John Oliver is to come and collect 150 trees from one of my nurseries, signed John Chapman, on the Mohican River. And there are undoubtedly lots and lots of these things. I mean, he sold the trees for pennies, and, you know, he didn't make much money. Of course, he wasn't, didn't need much money. But then almost invariably, rather than, you know, invest the money or save it, he would, uh, he would give it away to some cause or another. He'd buy somebody a pair of shoes. He, would, he, he hated to see horses suffer. So he often paid for pasturing for, uh, for you know, sort of like the, uh, the shelter the horses today you have. Uh, so he he had a, he had this sort of businessman's instinct with a philanthropist heart, and unlike Andrew Carnegie, let's say he never got enough money to do both. <laughs> yeah. uh, his philanthropy took all took, took all his income. So there was that. Then he was a uh, he he was a, a wilderness preacher. Again, it's it, it, it's kind of a subtle thing. He he would he would go from he had this kind of frontier lending library. He would go from house to house, to cabin to cabin, you know, widely separated cabins, with his religious tracts. He would tear chapters out, give one chapter this place, another chapter the next place, and then he'd pick the chapters up next time he came through there and move them on to the next house. It was thought that these, you know, the chapters, the uh, books of the Bible. In fact, what he was tearing up were books of the uh, of the Swedish mystic um, Emanuel Swedenborg. He was a he was the Swedenborgian's uh, man on the American frontier. Uh, something called the Church, the, the new the Church in the New Jerusalem. Uh, part of that sort of whole second 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 awakening movement of the early part of the 19th century. Uh, and so, so he, and he he preached he preached freedom. And then Swedenborg himself uh, is a fascinating guy. I'd write a book about Swedenborg, except I can't uh, read Latin, which a lot of his books are in, or Swedish. So I'd be at a big disadvantage, I think. But Swedenborg was taken to be a kind of an 18th century, um, yeah, 18th century da Vinci, a man of you know multiple talents in all sorts of fields. And then one day in 1845, he was having dinner in a London chop house. Uh, and uh, he was by himself in the bottom of this thing, and the, and, and the lights went out in the room as he told the, the floor began to writhe with snakes. He looked over to the side, and there was a white-haired man sitting there in a, in, a, in, a, in a glow of light, and he said to him, you eat too much, and then it disappeared. Later that night, the same man came, uh, came and, and, and revealed himself to him in his dreams as God, and for the next 15 years, he revealed in dream after dream after dream as Swedenborg uh, and Swedenborg being a scientist wrote all this down as it came along. Yeah, I have to ask you, how does yeah. a mystic in Sweden who may have had dinner in London, how do, how do his thoughts from the 18th century uh, very early on, how do they land in the frontier areas of Ohio? <laughs> That's, uh, because of one John Chapman, a.k.a. Johnny Appleseed, the church makes a the church makes an appearance in Pennsylvania through Philadelphia and heads out west towards Pittsburgh. And in, 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 it's a very high-end church. It's not. It, I mean, it's it's a blue blood church. Uh, and it, there's a guy named John Young who ends up near Pittsburgh in, in Greensburg, Pennsylvania. John Chapman presumably did some nursery work for him, and he uh, he indoctrinated him into the teachings of Emanuel Swedenborg. And I feel certain that. Just as God talked to Swedenborg throughout all the later years of life, I think God talked to John Chapman every day and uh, every minute during those times he was out in, out in the country. I mean, out in the living out in the wilderness. Now, there's you know, there's a saying that if you talk to God, it's prayer, and if God talks to you, it's schizophrenia. Uh, and and a lot of people thought. I mean, not, not a lot. But this could have been part of his own weirdness, not schizophrenia, but there was always speculation about exactly what might have happened to him. One that he'd been kicked in the head by a horse shortly after he got to uh, Ohio. People always want explanations that are very horse-kicking for for anybody who's a prophetic soul. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, And uh, and so I, I, I... 
so this makes, I mean, Chapman to me becomes ever more fascinating with and Appleseed with every one of these sort of layers you put on top of him. And it's out of all of this that this myth emerges, which has both Christian and 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 mythic qualities to it, you know, sort of ancient, I mean, antique myth, mythic qualities to it. Uh, and he becomes ever more hard. The the, the the real John Chapman becomes ever more lost in the in the background. But there was a real Chapman, and he had, and and, and he was uh, he you know he was a fascinating character in his own right. We're going to go into a break here on our show, uh, but right now, Howard Means, uh, give us a little a bit of a tease here because you said he was four things: a real estate speculator, a nurseryman, uh, a wilderness preacher. That's three. Uh, the fourth. Uh, <laughs> he was kind of, uh, he was basically a, the frontier equivalent of a, of a Bedouin nomad. He's always on the move and no place to lay his head. And no place to lay his head. Or he, ha- he, 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 he would, he would never go under a roof if he could avoid it. Um, so, you know, there, there was, there, there was this sort of, and that I think really fed the myth more than anything else because that allowed for all these stories to circulate about how he had a pet wolf and uh, how he refused. He would put out his fire if mosquitoes started to fly around so he wouldn't harm a... Uh, he, maybe I should say more he's closer to a Hindu ascetic. This turns into a, a story bigger than anybody could ever have predicted. I mean, here we are all these years later and people still know the name Johnny Appleseed. Uh, you were talking at the front end about uh, the Disney film coming out in 1948 after the Second World War. Um, three years after the Civil War, uh, a reporter for a, a writer gathered together all the sort of disparate little legends, uh, mythic pieces of Johnny Appleseed, assembled them in in one um, in, in, in an article for Harper's. New Weekly magazine, which then had a huge circulation, mass circulation, equivalent to kind of Life magazine in its prime 50 years ago, and it's it's the same moment in time in a way. It's I mean it, it's after the horror of war. If you think of the Civil War, I mean the horror of it's un, un, unimaginable almost. One in every 30 Americans alive at the beginning of the war was dead at the end of it. I'm sorry, one in every 60. I said one in every 30. Uh, the um, and I think I think it's a comforting myth. It's a it's it's a myth about in both cases, it's a myth about a simpler, more Edenic time in America. Uh, and so I I think one of the reasons that the myth caught hold so powerfully right after the second of the Civil War, is identical to the reason that the that the that the, that the movie the, the the cartoon Disney version caught hold. Right after the Second World War, a guy in the, one of his, the head of the story department at Disney called that, I think, the nearest thing to a sermon on brotherly love, the, the, the film uh, version of Johnny Appleseed, the nearest thing to a sermon on brotherly love and selfishness that, and unselfishness that Hollywood has ever attempted. Uh, I would concur. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, uh, and, you know, that's a nice message after the Second World War. And it's a nice message after the Civil War, and I think that's why it caught hold so quickly. Part of a conversation with Howard Means, who's a journalist and author of Johnny Appleseed, The Man, the Myth, the American Story.